50,000. That's the number of jobs New York State expects to be created over the next 20 years by attracting Micron to central New York, with the state's $7 billion of support and Micron's $100 billion investment. New York State has long been a leader in economic development programs, with the state and localities offering tax incentives and spending programs totaling $10 billion every year. I'm Andrew Ryan, the president of the Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What's the Data Point, which will again feature a recording of one of our live events. Today, we hear from President, CEO, and Commissioner of Empire State Development, Hope Knight. The need to attract, create, and grow jobs certainly is great. Nationally, jobs have grown 3.9% from before the pandemic, but only 0.1% in New York State. And the U.S. unemployment rate is 3.1%, while New York City's is 5.3%. The economy is rocking the future uncertain coming out of the pandemic, especially with the restructuring of work, remote work, and artificial intelligence all affecting what jobs we will have and what skills we will need. The governor's administration certainly has been very active with the Micron deal, expanding the film tax credit, focusing on workforce development, and more. Fortunately, Governor Hochul put an experienced hand at the helm of ESD. Hope Knight was nominated by the governor in October of 2021 and confirmed May of 2022. Previously, she was president and CEO of the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation, chief operating officer of the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone, commissioner on the New York City Planning Commission 2015 to 2021, Vice President at Morgan Stanley and Domestic and International Capacities and worked at Accenture and in New York City government. Stay tuned as President Knight and I talk about workforce development, the film tax credit, Penn Station, and what analysis is done to show that these investments are worth the cost. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And until next time, when you hear a public official talk about a policy, a program, or a proposal, always remember to ask, what's the data point? How are you today? Doing well, thank you. So great to be here with so many friends and colleagues. I know. Thanks for coming early and talking to people. Everyone wants to see you. Um, so let's jump right in. We can jump right into you know big picture about the administration's approach to growing jobs in the economy, which I guess is maybe the, the short version of your mission and what you do every day. I mean, it's interesting. There are two general approaches, not necessarily mutually exclusive. There's the let's have lower taxes and less regulation. And then there's the, um, let's focus on having um, having targeted tax and spending programs and making specific retention deals using those programs and discretionary money long before this administration. New York has been in that latter camp. We have the higher, highest combined, in the MTA region, highest combined corporate franchise tax, you know, in, in the country. Um, and so we focused on, we haven't worried about that side. We focus more on the um, incentive programs and discretionary deals. But how do you describe what the overall strategy? And if you want to tuck Micron in as an example of that, it doesn't do all the things, but what's the strategy and priorities and the approach? And then how does Micron fit into that? So from a... Um expansion of the economy perspective, because that's what we're trying to do. Uh, Looking at trying to attract companies to come to New York and having existing companies stay here. And many of our programs are targeted to do that. Um, Micron is is a good example of that. Uh, The state had been working to build the semiconductor industry uh, for a long time. It started with a chip study in 1998 where uh, this report indicated that if the state were to develop 
uh, large-scale greenfield sites, uh, it would be able to attract large semiconductor companies. And, you know, when I think about companies that the state wants to attract, high-growth, uh, advanced manufacturing materials, biotech, life sciences, uh, opportunities where folks have, you know, the ability to earn above average wages. So with Micron, um, the state had developed four sites, four large sites, uh, one in Western New York, one outside of Albany, one outside of Mohawk, well, one in Mohawk Valley, and one in Central New York. And we have uh, two uh, fairly large semiconductor firms in Albany and in Mohawk Valley. Uh, Micron chose uh, White Pine in central New York, a 1,400-acre 14 14 site. Um, they were very impressed with the assets of the Syracuse community. And um, you know, they told us that New York had the best team. We really understood what they were looking for, and we were able to accommodate um, the things that they were trying to do in building uh, four new fabs. And so, you know, this project is uh, going to be uh, generational changing in New York State. It's going to create 50,000 jobs, uh, about 10,000 at Micron, another 40,000 within the supply chain. Um, it's going to invest $100 billion over the next 20 years. And uh, one of the things that we saw that resonated for us and Micron was that you know, we had similar values. And so Micron is very interested in engaging uh, marginally, uh, historically marginally uh, disadvantaged communities. And uh, ESD and Micron are gonna create a $500 million community benefits fund to mitigate the impact of its location <clears throat> in Syracuse, as well as support uh, things like uh, childcare and a STEM school and workforce development and transportation so that uh, folks that historically have not been able to enter um, the semiconductor industry can think about that as a career. So thank you. I mean, and you didn't even touch on the global domestic, you know, production right. aspects, but let's drill down a little on the jobs. Obviously, part of the tools you have to attract is not only the space, sites that developed, Syracuse, where I was born, mm -hmm. Um, but um, a set of incentives totaling around $7 billion over 20 years mm -hmm. with some of the stuff we couldn't quantify, but I, th I think all in the direct jobs, I, I think are 9,000, which um, equates to on the direct jobs, $600,000 a job. And we've always at CBC, and we can delve into this, and others said, how do we know what's worth it? Is 600,000 a job an eye-popping number? It doesn't make sense. So I think about it in the $50,000, 50,000 job perspective, because by 2055, Micron will have created 50,000 jobs in the supply chain and as well as at the, um, at the plant. Um, we're trying to create a new industry in New York State. We're trying to grow that. The supply chain um, number will be much more than that over time. Um, we've already attracted Edwards Vacuum in the um, site in uh, Stamp, New York, that's uh, in Western New York. Uh, that's a 
a $600 million investment and, uh, excuse me, a $300 million investment is going to create 600 jobs. And I'm sorry. And that's an, that's an investment from the company. That's an investment from the okay. company. Exactly. Just trying to make sure that everyone has yes, gone. $300 million investment from the company. And so we will be attracting many, many, many more companies mm. to support this production. And so, you know, you say $600,000 a job, I say $100,000 a job, but also creating an industry that really will set this state up for continued growth and advanced manufacturing. So, so there's the direct jobs because that's, you know, it's a performance based, you know, most right. of most of the money is performance based capital investment, job right. creation, um, not all of it, but most of it. Um, but that's based on the direct yeah. jobs. And then there's the model that mm -hmm. says there's the in, indirect jobs and the induced jobs. Do you kick the tires on that model in a way? Because that's always where, you know, and from my public health and research, active career and, and research and economic development, there's a lot of black boxes in the world. And if I spend $100 million in every place, I can put it into a black box and I can create jobs and suddenly miraculously, it's good. How do you kick the tires on that number, um, either prospectively when you make the decision or retrospectively after it's done to know that that's, it's really 100,000, as you said, per job, not 600,000. So I think prospectively, you know, we really do look at assumptions on the models. We spend a lot of time if we think, uh, you know, it, we use a third party provider, if we think the assumptions are too aggressive, we make them tweak them. And so we really feel comfortable about those models. You know, heretofore, have we been able to collect data to really substantiate mm -hmm. after the fact? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, but we expect to do that on a forward basis. And I think that's important. Um, Started in the prior administration, expanded under um, yours, the Database of Economic Incentive, I can't remember the official title, has been yeah. you know, fleshed out and we urge you to keep doing that and keep doing analyses. Tax and finance, and we had talked a little about this, by the end of the year is going to do an analysis on the cost effectiveness of the tax incentives. What do you think we will learn from that and will that drive changes in policy because we realize certain things are less cost effective? I do think that we will learn that there is a return on investment in the incentives that we have in our programs. And we want to take the information and incorporate them to, to refine the programs. Yeah. And, and I will say from the, you know, analytic point of view, everything has a return on investment. The question is where you allocate it. Cause you're really making choices among, and that's right. my hundred million dollars. Everything can be said to be good. Mm -hmm. uh, money's pretty good, but, um, but you know, what's the relative impact? Would ESD do this commensurate study? Because that's on the tax expend that's on the tax expenditure side, but on the direct program grant side, are you thinking of doing something compatible? Because we would urge you to do it, because I think that the evaluations thus far have been somewhere between, if I might say, non-existent and thin. So as you know, we are starting that process and we do want to look at ways to evaluate our programs. So well, if you ever need a sounding board and someone to kick the tires, we're ready, willing, and able. Um, let's talk programmatically now. One of the priorities of yours in the administration is to make ESD the center of workforce uh, um, development activities across the state, which being the center means that you have a lot of partners within state government. So could you tell us what this looks like, what progress you've made so far, and what we can expect? 
So the premise of the Office of Strategic Workforce Development is really starting with the job first. A lot, there are a lot of training programs out here that train people for all sorts of things. And um, there is the expectation that there's a job at the end of the process. We're starting with the job first. We're finding out what employers need from a training perspective. Uh, we're working with training providers and training providers have to have employer partners in order to access our funding. Uh, we stood up the office last year. Uh, we launched our first round of uh, applications in October. We've had two rounds of uh, applications thus far. Uh, we've awarded $13 million in funding uh, with 200 uh, employer partners and 6,600 uh, folks to be trained. And um, focused in our you know, strategic areas, said uh, manufacturing, materials, uh, biotech, life sciences, clean tech, uh, digital media, high growth areas in the state. What are the, uh, so the research shows that this at times is more cost effective than other, than other types of strategies, mm -hmm. tax incentives and direct other grant programs um, as a sustainable model. Mm -hmm. Um, meaning those, those jobs can be, you know, um, permanent and, and growing in good jobs. What are the obstacles to doing this more? How much, how challenging is the trainer um, business partnership aspect and how challenging is the trainer capacity aspect? What are the biggest challenges you face to doing this better and blowing this up to uh, success? So I'll answer that question in a second. The, the one thing that I do want to mention about our program is that we are focused on creating um, wraparound services in the context of training. Mm -hmm. So things that historically been challenging for folks to access jobs, transportation, childcare, there may need to be a need for stipends. And so those wraparound services um, come with the training. I think you know, we're asking folks to do things differently than they have before. And so really making that um, relationship with the employer and the training provider stick. Um, you know, employers have short attention spans and particularly smaller employers, they're doing their thing, they're producing goods, they're delivering services, and they're not necessarily, you know, gonna spend the time keeping that line of communication open. We spent some time with um, some of the trade associations, uh, chambers of commerce to help aggregate that. And that's been working well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so over the next year, how do you see this developing? And what are the partnerships within state government and how's that working? Because I know there are different pieces and that was the question people had coming in because ESD was less involved and suddenly was the center. Right, so, you know, the Department of Labor still houses the majority of workforce development programs. The programs that we have are really more directly related to our portfolio. The thing that we've been able to do is define data requirements because we're starting from scratch. We've been sharing that with our other uh, state partners. And I think we're going to be able to uh, refine our future investments based on outcomes. And do you have a plan? Because one of the issues which, as I said, progress on the database of economic incentive, incentives has made progress. Do you have a plan 
to make these grants more transparent and what the results are so we can look at job retention and, and those kind of things. Will this all be transparent for the public to see how it's going? It will be. Um, as you know, with our database of economic incentives, you know, we've been adding many, many more fields. We have 50 plus fields mm -hmm. now. I mean, what we'd like to do going forward is create a little bit of uh, a, a user-friendly interface because mm -hmm. now it's getting clunky. And yeah. so <laughs> I want you to be able to access the information in a user-friendly way. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, hopefully whether within or outside, these grants will be in the, in the same spirit and same actuality of having, having the data. I know you're just starting. Right. So, you know, We're we won't building. sit here and ding you for what hasn't happened in your yeah. first year, but um, we'll be uh, partnering with you and uh, hopefully going forward on that. How is this affecting the region, regional economic development councils? Because we've talked about... CBC has done some work in the past, looking at the structure of RDCs, make some sense to get, you know, local priorities. Um, but, but we've basically said, when you look at the outcome, the output of REDC grants, it doesn't seem like the model's working, especially if you just look like, oh, everyone's getting the same amount of money, which kind of belies the common sense of need and amenability of the need and the strengths of the program. So suddenly, miraculously, everyone's getting the same money. How are you changing the REDCs and how much is that workforce driven or other? So the REDCs, you know, do have a strategic plan, and um, we are looking at the projects that come through the REDC process through the lens of the individual plans because the needs of the regions are different, and um, they're reviewed at the sort of the the regional council level. Mm -hmm. They're reviewed at the ESD level and at you know senior management. I look at these um, recommendations uh, each round. And, and ask questions, you know, is this really in alignment with, you know, the strategic plan? As the uh, regional councils update their plans, we're going to be even more rigorous around that. And with respect to workforce, many of the regions have goals around workforce and we're seeing some of those projects come through. Yeah, no, because we were looking and seeing that everyone now has to have a regional workforce in inventory. They're scoring fewer of the non-economic development proposals and focusing more here. Is this going to be a big transformation or just a marginal change? I think over time it'll be a bigger transformation because they won't have to worry about some of those projects that were really not economic development focused. So getting back to the kind of are we getting what do we pay for thing in a second. In this year's budget, we expanded the film tax credit. Mm -hmm. We invested in... Belmont Raceway, we extended four um, tax incentive programs in New York City, two of which the IBO had evaluated and said weren't effective. In each of these cases, did was there an analysis done to show that this would be worth it? As you know, CBC and others have looked at, for example, the film tax credit for years, and while there might be some target incentives necessary, have been wondering, um, have questioned, not been wondering, have questioned the uh, um, benefits of, of that particular, but all these programs. Were specific analyses done before those proposals went out? There were specific analyses done before those proposals. And let's talk about film tax, because that's yes, what we yes, like to I, talk I, about, right? Uh, we certainly looked at um, the analysis that's been done on the film tax credit. And as you know, we have a biannual study that gets done. Um, that speaks to the amount of um, industry spend versus the dollars that we invest. 
But the thing that we were looking at with the film tax credit program and why we felt the urgency is that there has been this competitive pressure that has been placed upon us. Um, Our neighbors have implemented uh, richer tax incentives. Uh, There are states around the country that have no cap with respect to the incentive. the incentive had been at $420 million since 2009 and had not been adjusted. And we saw productions leaving the state going to our neighbors who had richer incentives. And we saw that happen immediately as soon as they uh, uh, increased the incentive. And I know that, you know, you guys argue that, um, we can't determine how, you know, these productions are induced with respect to the incentive. And I think it's difficult because the film and television industry is a highly mobile industry. And we see uh, productions that are based in New York to talk about a New York story that get filmed in New Jersey. And we had an example of that started in New York City and then moved to New Jersey. So it's difficult to do that analysis but we were responding to the competitive pressure. How does this not become across industries, the race to the bottom? Well, you know, we do have a cap, it's $700 million. So we're not like one of those states that have no cap. Right, but we, our total spend from the beginning of the program was now raised, and I might get my numbers from 11 billion to 14.6 billion. I mean, we have a cap, but remember that's an annual cap, but you can accrue the credits and then you get them later. So. Well, well, but, it, but you, we, we never spend more than the cap during that in, year. In a year, in yes. In that year, yes. Um, so on the other incentives, do you have criteria that you use to decide when a tax incentive is no longer needed? Something like this, downtown Manhattan, there are different things that happen, different industries, different things that happen. There's a stickiness with all these things that once it, once they get enacted, they're there forever. And there's always going to be constituency for it because someone's always benefiting from it, like any other government program. As soon as you start it, there's a beneficiary who's going to lobby to keep it going. Are there criteria that you could set saying this is no longer um, necessary? This region is doing fine. This industry is doing fine. How do we stop this from being perpetual? So I think you know we have to rely on data. And, you know, in many cases where we have extended program, the data suggested that we still needed time for that. I'll give an example. Uh, We have a program that supports um, Broadway. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we look at have audience come back. We are nowhere near uh, 2019 levels of Broadway. And so we've extended the program hoping that we can build audiences to that. And I can't recall, how long was it extended for? Two years. Two years. Two years. So is that the kind of thing in two years you look at, and if the numbers in two years are the same as they were in 2019, you would end the program? I mean, yeah, yeah. yes, arguably, yes, because we we actually, for that program, we have some threshold data. We're looking at like sort of hotel nights and yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's targeted enough that it's more concrete than a lot of, yes, a lot of things. Okay, so when we have you back in a couple of years, we'll see how it's going. It's going, and, we, and, and we'll talk before then too, because I, I enjoy this. So let's get down to some specific other things. Penn Station, yes, near where our office is. 
Um, major administration priority. Yes. The governor's talked a lot about Penn Station. We've heard her, you know, it's one of the consistent themes. Now, obviously the structure um, of payment was that the state was gonna for the renovation portion, for example, the state was gonna front the money and as the pilots came in and development happened, get paid back and that's ultimately what we supported. Obviously there's a, the market is slow now. <laughs> um, puts a damper on that structure. What is the next steps right now? And, and just want to make a finer point on something. So we were going to use pilots, but we always knew that the pilot revenue was never going to fully fund the Penn Station yeah. program. So, um, and there's one point three billion already in the in the budget for it. That's right. And so uh, we are it, the plan is not going to unfold the way we had anticipated. Um, we have many of our partners here in the room. And, um, you know, we're having discussions about how to move forward. Uh, the, you read the GPP is dead. It is not dead. No, I asked about next steps because, I mean, the structure always, the structure wasn't as specific because the structure still exists. Right. The state could lay out the money now. It's six, is it six billion for compensation or seven billion? I'm sorry, I don't have any. Seven. Um, seven, sorry. Um, maybe it could just be focused on safety and you could bring that down a little. Um, but um, it was always anticipated that the state would front the money. It would just be a longer payback period. So that is, would that potentially be just one of the paths forward and build it into the state budget with the same structure, but know that it's going to take longer to get paid back? Is that on the table? I think we're contemplating a lot. You know, this market is changing. You know, residential was a part of the GPP. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility we think about it in the context of starting with residential. And as you say, um, this is a multi-decade process. And so, you know, we anticipate that uh, we'll be able to move forward. So speaking of residential, yes, CBC, because it had a lot of recommendations that the governor was in the governor's plan and was disappointed that the legislature effectively rejected it. And we've come out of session with one of the major priorities that many people agree to on the state kind of having no progress been made, which is certainly um, radically unfortunate, especially given the governor's bold and broad proposals. Um, given that, um, what can ESD do to boost housing production? As the governor's talked about, she's looking at ways and you guys, the administration is looking at ways that you can use the current powers without the legislature to boost housing production. What can ESD do? So, of course, we're not the primary housing uh, development agency, but there are projects in our portfolio where we can advance housing. Uh, a couple of things, you know, World Trade Center 5 is a project that we look mm -hmm. to see move forward. The next phase of Atlantic Yards, we wanna to try to move that forward. Uh, we've been doing community engagement at the Creedmoor site and would like to see housing there. Uh, the governor convened a prison redevelopment commission last year and a lot of recommendations out of that commission um, spoke to residential development. And so those are projects that we will try to advance. And then there are another set of projects like in the city, rezonings that assumed or penciled because there was a 421A extension notionally, you know, in everyone's hopes, like Innovation Queens, Bruckner rezoning, and there's a lot of affordable housing that people want, but without a housing plan, without a 421A, um, you know, successor, whatever that might look like, 
doesn't pencil, is there under consideration whether ESD powers, you know, GPPs could be used in those sites where rezonings have been um, agreed to and those plans have been agreed to, but now probably don't pencil under the current incentive system? We're having discussions about the possibility of what we're able to do in that regard. And before I open it up, and I say that because, you know, sometimes people are slow to think of their questions, so start thinking. Um, before I open it up, we, I started by contrasting two, you know, general approaches. And New York State has, has always been the value proposition that um, you get what you pay for, but you pay a lot. When you talk to business leaders, since this is what you do a lot of your time when you're not traveling around the state as much more, if you ever want to look at the announcements there, it's just incredible. I, I realized as I was preparing that hope has to be everywhere all the time. You're going to the North Country today, right? Yeah, later today. And was it raining at Storm King last week? Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful place, I'm sure, even in the rain. I'm glad well, I haven't had to visit. The rain. How much are business leaders you're attracting here? What are their concerns and how much is our regulatory structure and especially our high taxes a concern? So um, I think when they look at New York, they understand the tax structure. So then it's the regulatory framework. And we're trying to make the process as uh, frictionless as possible. And that is a real focus on with businesses. We just attracted a major dairy uh, producer. It's a um, subsidiary of uh, Coca-Cola. It's called Fairlife. They make a milk product that uh, they're, it's ultra filtered and it reduces the sugar by 50% and it increases the protein by 50%. So uh, a very uh, growing market in the dairy industry. And they were looking at other states that tr traditionally are more thought of as uh, dairy leaders. And uh, we presented them with a site that we thought that could work for them. Um, we were competing very hard, but we provided them a path to be able to get the uh, facility up and open very quickly. And uh, they're going to invest $600 million in a site in Webster, New York to open this facility. And I think that's an example where providing a path to getting to market quicker made the difference. And since I don't know about this, I'm just hearing about this. What, what are our financial incentives on that deal? And my, what I'm really getting to, how much does that matter versus the frictionless path? Because when I talk to people around New York, I hear all the time, you know, I have capital. Where am I going to invest it? This place is a pain in my, and the other place says, hey, come on in, let's talk. Your point is you want to be the come on in, let's talk place, but New York is not necessarily known that which matters more like in, in this deal? was I, it, it the come it on and let's both, talk it was both because um you know they wanted to see what kind of incentives we would offer but also can we get this done quickly mm -hmm. okay i'm going to open it up for some questions i'm sure that people have have a lot they want to talk to you about i didn't get to all the specific uh activities i'll turn to hal First of all, thank you for coming today. Uh, Micron, absolutely amazing that we were able to get Micron to New York. And I know the competition in Texas and elsewhere. Um, very aware of it. But for Micron to be successful, we need to house a lot of those employees. So my question is, are you thinking about any incentives for housing to be built up there near Syracuse University? So, so we haven't 
thought about any incentives specifically, uh, but we know that housing is gonna have to be built and I'll be working with my colleague at HCR to figure out what are the programs that'll be available to produce the housing that's gonna be needed for that region. And I think I saw Carol and then Walter. Hi. Hi. You spoke about the competition about the film tax credit with other states, um, and that there's generally kind of a race to the bottom tends to happen with these things. Specifically with New Jersey, there seems to be a, a lot of contention lately. Congestion pricing, people putting up signs saying don't go into New York City, but and kind of arguing about how to administer the port which is a perfect example of the fact that while you are the state economic development director, we are a regional economy. And we depend on specifically New Jersey and Connecticut, and they depend on us. Um, is there any thought in this administration about trying to come up with some sort of a ceasefire agreement with, within our region that we don't try to take business or residents away from each other or you know, outdo each other with incentives. You, you know, you have three Democratic governors, and is there an understanding, and is it worth trying to do something in this regard? So I have had conversations with my uh, counterparts in New Jersey and Connecticut, and we've been, we've had discussions about the notion of not poaching each other's businesses. And we'll continue to have discussions about it, but I think it's a good start. We've never done that before. Um, small and mid-sized businesses are really part of the driver of the New York economy. And I've heard it said from many small businesses that the economic development is really works for larger businesses and for big, big projects coming in. But as Andrew was saying, the bureaucracy in New York and the regulatory drag is so significant that to what extent do you think that is a chilling effect on small and mid-sized businesses trying to grow in New York? We know that um, the regulatory environment is challenging for small and mid-sized businesses, and we try where we can to mitigate those circumstances. Uh, we have capital access programs for uh, small and mid-sized businesses and, you know, provide them the ability to access capital when they want to grow. Thank you. I saw Peter over here. I'm looking for my neck, so stick up your hand. Now, has the state done any study or analysis comparing the benefits of these targeted incentives or grants that go to particular businesses, comparing what the consequence would be or the benefit to the state would be if instead one took those billions of dollars and simply applied them to reducing business taxes across the board, including for the benefit of small and medium-sized companies? And if so, uh, where could we find it? Thank you. So we have not done any studies in that regard, but that, that's an interesting concept. That was good, I was thinking about that this morning. Peter, you know, as I was yes, thinking about no. the modeling, because it is all about, you know, it is all about those trade-offs. And uh, as I looked at Bill, because I won't, I, uh, you know, he caught my eye just before I was going to ask you about casinos, but we'll come back to it. Yeah, uh, your predecessor, UDC, under um, Ed Logue, was 
primarily focused on housing, and it had bonding capacity and the ability to override local zoning. Do any of those powers still reside with uh, the current agency? And, and has there been discussion of expanding on a big scale your capacity to uh, produce housing, given that the governor's plan seems to be uh, on hold? So we still have the capacity to execute uh, general project plans, which you know are able to override local zoning. Um, we're having discussions with the chamber around using our powers, as Andrew just said, uh, with respect to expanding uh, residential production. Um, yes, sir. So my question is about uh, the prisons. So that report you mentioned earlier, I read it. Shout out to the folks who put together that report. It's very comprehensive. Uh, so regarding prisons, as everyone knows, a lot of closed down prisons in New York, which create a huge opportunity because they are large swaths of land. So I was wondering, uh, I know it talked a little bit about RFPs and stuff, RFPing out those prisons, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the uh, ESDs uh, plans for uh, residential development as it relates to uh, the many prisons that are that were mentioned in that report. So uh, we do have plans for some of the prisons downstate. Um, Lincoln Correctional Facility, which is on 110th Street, is actually currently housing migrants temporarily, but is the subject of an RFP. And uh, we look to uh, select uh, a developer, you know, within the next six months. Uh, Bayview is another prison that's closed um, that we expect to release an RFP on, and then probably one of the downstate prisons in the Mid-Hudson Valley. Karim. <laughs> um, since uh, when he was reading your list, um, but thanks for coming this morning. So a quick question on the housing piece. Um, what, how is the state thinking about um, affordable housing within that? Um, it, in one of the RPs, it was interesting because you guys wanted, willing to have some affordable housing, but weren't doing any subsidy towards it. Um, so I'm just thinking from a long-term concept, obviously a lot of pressure here in the city to build more affordable housing. Um, how are y'all thinking about your RFPs uh, from that perspective? Well, it's going to, you know, sort of look towards whatever it is that gets, you know, created to support more production, to support subsidy in, in, in the governor's goal in creating housing. So, you know, we hope to be able to have something announced in the near yeah, future. Yeah, I was going to, knowing that you probably don't have the perfect crystal ball, I mean, the governor's talked a lot about this, so you know this is this is not a surprise. Um, and she was been a tremendous leader on this. Do we have a time frame for an announcement? What's your gut tell you? Because I mean, you're hearing it here in the questions, right. and we all know how important it you is. Yeah, I think it's in the, you know this quarter. Um, okay, it's got to figure something out soon. Sounds good. Sounds good. I won't even hold you to the fact that this quarter in my book ends in a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> um, can I ask? Because you mentioned migrants and. Um, we have, there are parts of the upstate economy that have been challenged, you know, throughout anybody in this room who's, you know, spent time on this has been challenging. And I'm sure you've focused part of your 
brain is very specific on, on figuring those out. And there's always been a question about population loss. We have a special time in the pandemic in New York City, especially. Yes, that's a different conversation. But there's always been a question about um, the need for workers. And we have this influx. We have this interesting dynamic. I saw the mayor of White Plains and Albany on mm -hmm. TV last night talking about the migrants that are coming. And I know we don't have work permission yet. And that's the issue. Isn't this a great opportunity? And what can the administration do to, to help? Because we have mayors saying no, but yet they're also telling you we need workers. So the governor is very focused on trying to speed up the process that migrants have um, to be able to get work permits. You know, we have 5,000 farm jobs that are unfilled. We have 5,000 food service jobs unfilled. And, you know, we believe if we could speed that process along, that would help a lot of these upstate economies where those jobs exist. So would it be your anticipation if, if work permits came, the upstate um, mayors would welcome them with Absolutely. more open arms? Absolutely, if they could work in some of those unfilled jobs, because, you know, you get the lamenting about not having enough workers. Yes. But not wanting to. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah, I can yeah. imagine. We have time for one more, Ed, please. With respect to job training that is upgrading in a tight job market, uh, what people can do, and particularly when you're bringing in more high-tech uh, industries, community colleges at the moment are working at a very low capacity, in part because of the tight job market. Have you? How do you interact with community colleges? We have a terrific system of community colleges, 30 upstate, five here, and they're supposed to be involved in this, and they could become very involved with their excess capacity. So absolutely, I've been working with um, the SUNY and CUNY Chancellor, specifically around community colleges, um, to look at um, not only degree granting programs, but also certificate programs to support some of these high growth job areas. And any last questions or should we let you all go and talk to each other? Okay. Well, hope, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Um, hopefully great success. We all depend on it.